I'm Stephen Crafty. I'm presenting Talking Design at RMIT University in Melbourne, and I'm with Dean Gaylor. He's um, an industrial designer and also director of Mance Design in Melbourne. And Mance Designs had an interesting history. It was actually founded by Jeffrey Mance, who was a lighting designer and who passed away, unfortunately, a few years ago. And um, Dean is now the director. Um, just before I introduced, before Dean starts to speak, you probably remember um, Jeffrey Mance's designs with his, I hate the word, but iconic, um, it's a bit corny, iconic um, branch twig um, lamps that were quite successful for a number of years. Welcome to the show, Dean. Thank you, Stephen. We sometimes like to throw the term colloquially iconic in front of that hedgehog design. So It's called the hedgehog. The hedgehog it is indeed, yeah. Um, Jeffrey passed away very quickly yeah. a number of years ago, yeah. and it must have been quite big shoes to fill. Uh, it was indeed. It was kind of a really interesting experience when um, when Jeff fell ill the first time around. He um, had probably a two-year break between the first time he had cancer and then when he went to remission the second time. And the second time around, I think a few of those of us who had experienced someone battling cancer like this before could see that Jeff's health was deteriorating. And we didn't really think too much about the future. We just thought about... Um, that moment, how we're going to best resolve the business for Jeff and um, the estate obviously involved. There was no idea that we, not immediately anyway, that we would continue on the business in some form or any capacity that we have done today. So uh, at the time, we are just trying to make sure that anything that left the studio was, you know, kind of honouring Jeff's legacy, making sure the quality of work was up to standard with the, you know, the, the image of Jeff's mm-hmm. creations that he'd built, you know, over the past 20 years of his work. So He had a very, I mean, he was... I only met him once. He was a charming man, delightful sense of humour. Probably a little too charming. <laughs> a little too charming. But I think that actually came out in the work of Jeffrey Mann. Yeah, it did. I think you can you look through the catalogue of works and it's you know, it's very quirky. It's um you know there's a lot of works in there that are highly original that you know, just don't come close to anything that's on the market today. And when you said iconic before, I think you know, it's important to say that those works are iconic, even though it's a bit of a cliche term that gets bandied about probably a little bit too much in this industry. Mm-hmm. But I think it's well-deserved in these cases. And it's, you know, um, for us, these works have travelled pretty far across the globe. And, you know, people have come and visited us from places such as in France just to see the works that Jeff had created. So you, his personality does shine through in those works. And I think, you know, he was a larger-than-life character, and I think his works are larger-than-life as well. So you were actually in the studio when the hedgehog... Came off the drawing board, or that no? Was I, I came just after the hedgehog came off the drawing board, and it was interesting because um, it wasn't too long after that that it was born. But when I started, I could see there was things about that obviously um, were the concepts of you know of the birth of the hedgehog and how it initially began. And it was a really interesting process because the initial design uh, was completely different to what was um, what's in front of us now in that picture. Uh, it also had some great contribution from uh, one of the guys in the studio by the name of John Howen, who's an incredible artist to this day as well. So I think that was the, the ability of Jeff too to kind of gather strong minds in the same studio space and everyone could bounce off each other on ideas. And I think uh, John in particular assisted quite heavily with um, how that hedgehog came to be born, pretty much. How do you take on that legacy when you're starting to design new ranges and you don't do really collections you you kind of evolve with pieces yeah how do you how do you take it forward and is it clients telling you what they're looking for or things that you think are kind of lacking in the market or something that a commercial project is perhaps suggested 
Yeah, it's really interesting. I think every point you just listed then mm. is, um, you know, what we look at is in, uh, you know, determined as an economic viability towards the business, you know, what's going to be beneficial to us. So, you know, there's stuff that we'd love to create, but, you know, at the same time, where's it going to find its marketplace? You know, the cost of producing it alone would, would mean that we'd have to find someone who's got the money to purchase that design as well. So there's a lot of great ideas that are floating about in the back of the brain amongst many of us in the studio, but at the same time, it's trying to fund those things. So then obviously to get those things off the ground, you've got to make sure the cash flow is going good and the bread and butter jobs are coming in. And, and that means that you do have to kind of, um, have designs that kind of cater for not the low end of the market, but also, you know, balance your range of works out um, and you can see them turn around pretty quickly in production as well. So, you know, we probably started off when we um, first started the business, we were kind of thinking that we probably didn't have too much that were in the lower end of the market. And the business kind of, when it was born out of Jeff's death, uh, was the same time that the GC really hit. So we really had to contemplate, you know, how we're going to approach the designs, what um, the market was looking for. And it was an incredible time because we found the market um, really kind of backed off a little bit on the high end and it had a bit of a pause. So it gave us an opportunity to pause on what we're doing and focus on what what made Mance design a great company or what was going to make Mance design a great company. And we kind of at that time found a niche that um, we were pretty much one of very few in the country that could really take what we'd learnt from Jeff's time with dealing with all the different materials, artisans, uh, fabricators, and and put that into custom designs and turn them around fairly quickly as compared to, you know, when you look at some of the European designers, like I know some of them require, you know, almost six months to turn a, a custom design around. So I think we've really probably um, made a very strong impact in the market for for our ability to turn um, or to make a custom design that's, you know, tailored towards a client's specific in, needs. In how long? Oh, look, it's pretty demanding. We used to find that, um, you know, a good job, uh, would be you know a twelve to sixteen week lead time, but we're finding the markets changed significantly since we started the business, and now, you know, we're getting what was a four week lead time is now a two week lead time for a smaller job, and what was a sixteen week lead time is now an eight week lead time. So, you know, we're having to become smarter of how we how we make these works, adapt to it, making sure we can you know facilitate managing the the job well enough to ensure that it gets installed on time because we do a lot with hospitality. So, mm. um, you know, why do you think it's getting so quick? I think it's uh, go back to the GC. I think um, when when developers kind of came to a pause, and you know, not that funds froze up, but I think um, there was a, there's this expectation now to turn around, you know, the jobs quicker, and so everyone can get paid quicker. That meant that everyone had to, you know, kind of start working a bit harder and turn around. You know, every pretty much every fabricator supplier involved with the process then got brought up to speed and had to turn those jobs around a lot quicker as well. So it's just the demand that we work in. And I know, speaking with um, other architects and interior designers, they feel the same mm-hmm. same pressure this, to this day. commercial. Yeah, especially commercial. Like anyone who's dealing with shop fitters, retail outlets, hospitality, um, you know, instantly you're going to be put on the pump to deliver a job mm-hmm. in time. Whereas when you go residential, I think um, in most cases residential – when I say relax, they're not relaxed with their attitude towards what you're delivering, but relax more so making sure that you've got enough time to deliver what you're putting in there. Because as opposed to hospitality, a hospitality venue might only last for five to 10 years, whereas mm. residential, a lot of people that, you know, you know, hand over their cash for a, for a chandelier or a pendant want to make sure that it's there for as long as they mm. are. And in some cases, that's for the next 20, 30, 40, mm. 50 years. So they might be a bit more lenient making sure that you get the product done right to, to you, get it in. Um Dean, you've had some really quirky ideas. <laughs> when I visited your studio a few weeks ago, I, I saw a number of them. You've got 
Um, for people who can't see it, we have these delightful kind of chandelier-esque type lights called candles in the wind, and basically suspended candles. They look like suspended candles. They're just floating. Um, you had another series that you did a few years ago where you flocked chandeliers, you flocked yeah. lights. So it's very tactile. It is indeed. And we, we also find um, with something like flocking, uh, Jeff was really great at using the flocking and kind of caught onto that as a process that hadn't been used within pretty much the interior industry. And so it was only, I mean, flocking was big in the 70s on wallpaper. Yeah, it was. It, it's, it seemed to be a really dated finish. And, um, you know, from the 70s when it got ruled out in interiors and wallpapers, pretty much the only time you'd come across flocking would be inside of the, you know, a case of a ballerina jewelry box or something along those lines. Um, you know, the automotive industry continued to use it for many years as well for, um, you know, the inside of a glove box and so forth. And Jeff just happened to know someone that was involved with flocking and basically um, brought that into context with our work and started flocking hedgehogs, ghost stories, uh, chandeliers as well. And he probably started to flock a bit too much, but it, it, um, it started to snowball and then other people kind of were looking at what Jeff was doing and was looking at the popularity of these finishes as well and then started implicating them in their own designs and to the point where... Um, you know, the Carlton Club Hotel is completely flocked, you know, from floor to ceiling pretty much. So, mm-hmm. to be honest, I think the Carlton Club Hotel probably put an end to flocking for a lot of people. So, uh, it's <laughs> That's a, the one with the taxidermy every Yeah, day. it is. Yeah. So, and it's got, I think, bright pink, which is probably now, um, uh, I think you're still allowed to smoke in there when they did that. So, it's probably stained with a bit of nicotine and, and dart out a bit. But, um, yeah, it's certainly, it's, it's a finish too that we've kind of backed away from a bit as well. Like, we still see it as a great finish for the hedgehog and the ghost story, but we find the idea of a flock chandelier is probably a little dated. So we're trying to... I think that's probably one thing we've learnt um, from taking on the business is basically just making sure that, you know, whatever is in our catalogue works is is timeless as well. Like, we find that probably one of the biggest problems... Um, at the moment in the industry is that there's a lot of designs that are just coming out to follow the trend that's, you know, at the moment. And, you know, it should be a timeless piece. It shouldn't be something that's just designed for two, three years. That's Well, talking of trends, and I know you're not trend-driven, but there has been, I would say, for the last five years, I don't look where there's the exposed light bulb. Yep. You've done them, and they're quite beautiful. Yours are quite... Um, We're probably to blame for a lot of the uh, stuff that you see out today. Copied. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but yours are quite beautiful. Um, look, they're really quite... It's the shape of the go- uh, the globe. Yeah. They're quite exquisite. Is it something you think exposed light light bulbs will come to an end shortly? Because people, I hope so. You uh, hope so? Yeah, I do. Look, I was in, uh, for example, as I was saying before, I just got back from Perth yesterday, and I was in a venue in Fremantle. It was an, an amazing venue. Um but it was li- I felt like it was littered with exposed light globes, and I felt that was the one problem with the venue, whereas I could, from my sense, the people there thought the lighting was amazing. And it's... I'm not saying Fremantle's dated, because yeah. I love Fremantle, but it was just a sense that it was just a lazy way of introducing lighting into the venue, and it was, you know, some people think that option is, a, you know, a relatively affordable option, but when you do it en masse, it isn't actually as affordable as what it would be if you put in a couple of pendants. they're quite pendants. expensive. Yeah, they're not cheap. So by the time, you know, depending yeah. what flex, whether it's silk or cotton and so forth, there's all those little factors that determine the price. But, um, you know, there's been a few people that... Um, have come to us and immediately without saying anything to them has said to us, look, you know, whatever is going to be put forward to us, we're not interested in exposed light globes. And and that to us is telling us that people kind of, anyone who's wanting a bit more of an original space mm-hmm. kind of is, you know, immediately ruling that out. 
as a as an interior finish because it's you know not standing out it's not advertising their business and not separating them from the yeah. rest of the crowd so so congratulations to those guys because i think it does make a massive difference when you um buck the trend really and um, where do you think lighting's heading if you think that that very exposed bulb look is where do dwindling think, where do you think it's heading there's a few different directions it's taking and it all depends on um domestic commercial yeah and also the architects that like you know we're kind of finding especially the hospitality scene in melbourne is um you know we're finding a lot of the same type fonts are being used for the branding of the business the same tiles the same flooring you know and once again it's coming back to that thing there's a lot of repetition coming out in those products so i think um you know, hopefully that does die out a bit, and hopefully a few cafes stand up and kind of um, make a bit of a change in the interiors because it would be great to see some of, some of the more interesting architectural movements out there at the moment that are not using pennants. That are, um, for example, the brutalist movement. Not, yeah, not a lot of people are a fan of it, and people see it as a cult thing. But I think there's venues um, that have done really well at it. Like there's a, I'd say, I don't know if you've been there, but there's a venue in Sydney called Ribbons Ribbon Hills Cafe. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's great because it kind of, once again, it bucked that trend of using exposed light globes using... What um, do they use? Uh, it's concrete walls. Uh, there's, I uh, haven't been there for a little while, so it's part of my memory on it. But um, I just remember going there feeling like it was quite a minimalist, um, cross-brutalist movement inside that venue. And it just, it, like, the venue was filled. People were there for the food. The the um, the interior of it complemented the food. And it wasn't a case of the food was complementing the interior, which I find is a lot of the case these days. And I, th- I think... You know, a publican once said to me years ago that, um, you know, he didn't want his clients coming to the restaurant and feeling like they're paying for their fit out through their meal. And I think that's the goal of any hospitality venue. Um, Dean, so in a sense, good lighting design should be almost not obvious. Yes and no. (laughs) Once again, it depends on the venue, I think. Like, um, for, uh, look, if we go, you know, there's a picture in front of you right now of um, a wisteria fitting that we designed and made for uh, Mercat Tyners and St Kilda. Now, when you walk into that room, you can't help but notice that fitting, and that that fitting How makes the space. How would you describe it, Dean? Basically, that fitting is made out of an annealed copper, which we can manipulate quite easily. And we, we sculpt it on site, but at, it, we call it a wisteria because it obviously has uh, bouquets of flowers that come off the, the copper that's braided. So it's like a braided copper that's twisted and worked like into place. like a vine. Place. Yeah, like a vine, pretty much. And at each end, there's an illuminated bouquet of flowers that are um, made out of Swarovski crystals that then have a beautiful output of light and send mm. prisms of light across the whole room. So that there has an impact, and it's you know highly decorative. It stands out. Um, it helps create that space significantly, whereas there's some some lights, um, you know, such as our slim light um, fitting, which you've seen before mm. in our studio, mm. which is the fluoro, which we spoke about this last time, about um, how that fitting allows the architect and the interior designer to play on, on the space by uh, configuring that pendant in its own form within that space. So, so you're kind of giving the designer or the architect the power to become the overall designer. Yeah, exactly. And so I think, you know, there's two spectrums of the lighting design sector there. And I think that's where, um, you know, lighting design can go. I think it can be um, something that where it's a highly decorative feature and it makes the space and or helps shape the space, helps, shapes, create, helps create the environment. Or it could be something that, as you said before, um, blends into the environment and just highlights features. And, yeah, highlights features of the architect's work. And I think a lot of architects, I think... I have to be careful what I say, but there are a lot of architects that... Uh, you don't have to mention names. No, I won't mention names, but there's a lot of architects that find it hard to work with a lighting designer because the lighting designer ultimately wants their work to be seen, whereas an architect ultimately wants their work to be seen Bigo. as well. Yeah, so you, you kind of... Um, 
you want to highlight their works, but at the same time, you want your work to be highlighted as well. So that's a that's a interesting balance to find. So, Dean, that's a good point that you made. How difficult is it to tell an architect or a designer that they're really not doing the right thing? They're not showing their work in the best possible light without being corny. Yeah, look, how I do think, you how do you deal with it? Uh, to be honest, we we don't do that so much because we have pretty good clientele. So. Um, we have come across people like that before. Uh, we, we had one not too long ago, which um, I just thought the whole process was so frustrating that, you know, it was to the detriment of the space as well. And I just kind of think, it, you know, for us, you know, we, we make money out of these jobs, obviously, but it's, you know, we don't do it for the money. We do it for the ability to, you know, make a better portfolio you, of work. And did, Dean, did you put in your advice to this architect? Uh, yeah, I did, yeah. And? Uh, it didn't really go down well, so kind of... Um, and probably because it was, once again, it's a almost a clash of ideas and um, and design-driven uh, dri- design ideas, really. So th- that architect had an idea in mind with how the lighting would work within the space. I didn't agree with it. Uh, I suggested something else, but I could see that they already had in their their mind that that's the fitting that they wanted, and it would react like this in the space, and it, you know, and it wouldn't. And I think when you're dealing with a new client, that's the kind of um, tension. Yeah, the tension that's created sometimes, and it's really hard to kind of, you know, break the ice pretty much in a moment like that. And sometimes it it doesn't work out well, and sometimes that client might walk away a little bit disgruntled with the fact that we've been pretty honest and and almost yeah. brutal with our advice on the situation and. And then there's times where they recognise it, and there's times where we get told as well by the architect that you know, have we considered this? And, and do you, do you find when something doesn't work, yep. and the architect obviously is kind of stumbling a bit, um, that they actually, you know, it's a healthy discussion, or it becomes quite antagonistic? I find in most cases it's a healthy discussion. Like as I was saying before, I started with um, uh, mentioning that we have some great clients where we can nut that out and sit down with them and have a meeting with them and go, look, this is, you know, I, I can see what you're trying to do here, but, you know, maybe we'll look yeah. at this. And then in some cases, you know, we might spend an hour just sketching out different ideas and kind of figuring out how that happened. Then we'll go take those ideas. And generally, it's it's like being back at university in some cases. We'll walk away with those ideas, go back to the studio, we'll fiddle around with it on a on SolidWorks, for example, and we'll create some renderings um, in another program, and then we'll put different ideas towards the architect, ideas that are influenced heavily by our opinion of how it should be done in the space, and then the architect will generally turn around and go, yep, cool, I love where this one's going. So then we've got a great you know, middle ground of you know where we're going to build that design on from there. Because um, lighting's quite an expensive process. Yeah, it can be. And, and you don't want to kind of go too far down a track if it's going wrong. Yeah, exactly. And I think the other thing is expensive process, but at the same time, um, it's one of those areas that gets cut back very quickly in a budget because it's also the last thing that goes into a space. So if, um, you know, quite often we find this project that might be, you know, if it's a three, four year project to multi-story development, the lighting's often the lighting and furnishings, the mm-hmm. last thing to go in. If they're running over the budget, then they obviously look where they're going to cut money from and it might be cutting out half the light fittings or something mm-hmm. along those lines. So for us, it's concerning as well because we'll do a lot of design um, without really getting uh, ruminated for it as much as what we'd like to be. And, you know, you expect then maybe at the end of the job you're going to sell so many fittings and, you know, sometimes you don't sell so many fittings so it hasn't worked mm-hmm. out, you know, as nice as what you'd like it to work out financially. That's the other problem. If you do produce so many fittings for a job and they cut right back, then you're in a sense stuck with X 
Eggs fittings. Uh, we, no, we generally we won't produce fittings until we have a clear. Like we won't start the fabrication until we have a clear understanding yeah. of exactly how many they want. But it's, mm. the, I suppose, it's the design process too. Because if we, for example, if someone says to us they're looking at three hundred fittings within a space, then we can look at you know cost driven factors that go okay. Well, to make this fitting and to provide it to the client for the best price possible, if we're going to get three hundred made, we can go to this fabricator or we can use this material because it's going to come down significantly in price because we're buying so much of it. Whereas if um, if we costed and quoted the job based on 300 fittings and all of a sudden it gets cut down to 100 fittings, then all of a sudden that's when the cost of that fitting might increase significantly. And that's a really hard situation. We've been in that one a few times because then you go back to the client and say, hey, look, you know, since doing this, you know, it's gone from 300 to 100. The 100 is actually significantly more to produce per fitting than what it was for 300 so this is the price that we're handing over and that's when you kind of get into a sticky situation and then generally it's at the last minute too before they you know yeah, before they up. yeah before they sign off and they need to sign it off because they're left at the last minute in most cases so mm. so um yeah there's been some challenging times with uh, situations like that dean how does the process tend to work in the studio do you kind of come up with concepts ideas or does one idea feed another one or do you kind of sit around the table and go look we really need to present a new collection or come the, up with some new designs? How does it work? The presenting the new collection thing is not something that works in our studio because I feel that puts some um, unnecessary pressure. pressure on you to... Um, and I see that from other people as well. Like, I won't name names, but I can see people that are releasing designs... In uh, the lighting business. Yeah, in the lighting and even furniture. Yeah. And I think when you, when you see that and you're aware that they're trying to keep that momentum going with their work then I think you look at those works and you can see a lot of it's heavily borrowed from other items or designs that have come out in recent times. So, And that's the pressure you put on yourself if you're going to release a range um, every season or every year. Whereas for us, you know, it needs to be an enjoyable experience. So, you know, often you'll have an idea that comes into your head and then the next process would be making sure that no one else has done that. So it kind of sounds weird. Um, you know, if I went back 10 years ago and thought, what would I be doing for one day's work? Would it be sitting on the internet researching whether there's any other designs out there similar to what I want to make? It seems like a lot of waste of time, but at the same time, it can save you a, a hell of a lot of time down the track from not having to uh, cancel that design because it's too similar to something else. That's the other point. There are so many similar designs yeah. on the market now. Um, it must be very worrying as a designer to you you invest a lot of time a lot of research you've done all your work but then by the time you've released something or just before you're going to release something something very similar comes onto the market what do you do yeah you kind of panic a little bit and we change it uh well sometimes you don't have the ability to change it we had one recently which was a custom design and not that it's exactly the same or um i'd say there's similarities between that design and something else that i've seen recently and you know, it, being a custom design, it's probably not as bad as what it would be if it was a design that we wanted to catalogue and promote. Um, obviously, that custom design was inspiring us to turn elements of that into a product that we could then push, whereas that's kind of been put on hold for a little bit till we kind of reassess where it goes from there. But, you know, I heard... How close was it? Uh, the, I would say... If you weren't too educated on it, you could probably, if you saw both of them within the same week, you'd probably think it was done by the same designer. But if you were educated on both of those designs, then you could tell there was differences between the two of them. But um, they used completely different lamps. They used, um, you know, completely different internal structure, different suspension. But overall, the aesthetic was very similar. 
Um, but I think that's probably a big issue we're at with design in this country at the moment too, because a lot of it is quite minimal, and it's gone back to that 50s, 60s styling, which I, I know I don't know if it's going everywhere at the moment, but I'm certainly seeing that a lot in a lot of the spec sheets and schedules that we're looking at at the moment. There's kind of that... Retro feel. Yeah, almost like that Californian kind of bungalow furnishing effect coming into play. So, um, so of course, if you're going to strip um, designs back, you know, the less there is, the the more chance there is of it being similar to something else, I find. So, um, so for example, spun shades, you know, there's probably, I don't know, metal spinning's a great, um, great fabrication process. It's, it's easy, it's relatively effective um, for its price point, but that's probably one of the biggest problems of it because it is a fairly accessible uh, process to work with. You know, you don't need much money to create a tool or to make a tool and then, yeah, to do it. So I think what's happening is we've got a lot of designers that are going straight to metal spinning because they know they can afford to make a tool and turn turn something into a design. But you are limited with what you can do with metal spinning. So, you know, that's something we've acknowledged in the last 12 to 18 months going, well, that's, you know, it would have been great to come out with a different range of lights yeah. that are made out of metal spinning. But at the same time, you know, there's a lot of other people that are catering for that part of the market. Dean, do you patent your designs? Uh, no, we don't, unfortunately. Too expensive or just too Yeah, look, it it seemed too expensive, and I had this conversation with a few other Australian designers, that um, it's a really sad state of affairs in Australia for the fact that there is so much replica works going on there that fighting these companies... Takes too much effort. It takes too much effort, costs too much. I've been down the path with a few lawyers before where, you know, I've spent $10,000, $20,000 before I've even got anywhere. Yeah, and it's kind of like, how often do you want to be doing that in order to, you know, justify... like? You do want to justify it, yeah. but, you know, I've, I've gotten to the point, I think, where now I'm, I'm better off focusing all that effort and energy towards a new design or a new product mm-hmm. um, or a new client instead of trying to chase up someone who's, who's I think I had something. a discussion with you previously that I think one of the reasons I'm interested in publishing design and different designers' work is it is a sense of a patent. Yeah. If you put it out there first and say this is man's design then at least it's out there. Yeah. So if you do decide to pursue legal yeah, channels, think, you've at least you've got it in... A in, moral ownership of it, really. I think that's of kind ownership. of... Yeah, I think... You know, I think that's what it comes down to the most, like knowing that that design is yours and you own that, um, you know, outright ethically and morally. Whether you can paint it or not is another question, but it seems to be a, a big problem with a lot of designers that are coming up with original designs at the moment that they, they're getting copied. And the sad thing is there's actually... Australian companies that are copying these works of Australian designers, you know, shouldn't really matter if it's Australian or an international so. designer, it's pretty downright dirty to start off with. But the ones that are making the most amount of money in the country at the moment are the ones that are, for the design sector are the ones that are actually selling a lot of the replica furniture. So, yeah, it's uh, really sad. sad. It is. Well, look, um, Dan, it's nice to know there's still a few creative individuals in the lighting industry left. There's not many. There's a few. There's uh, a few. And um, look, just keep up the great work. We, I love seeing your work. Um, there's always a bit of a surprise. There's always something tongue-in-cheek, like whether it's candles in the wind or a bit of flocking. But there was always that delight. And I think even though you're not Jeffrey, you've kind of carried on his humour. So yeah, I think the that's quirkiness, really, I think. Yeah. yeah. And I think as we go forward, that's, uh, that's what I think people are looking for, a bit of, a bit of pleasure in their lives. Yeah, something playful. Dean Gaylor, um, thanks so much for coming onto the show. You've been with Stephen Crafty, Talking Design at RMIT University in Melbourne. Thanks so much for listening.